It's uh, good to be with you all and uh, good to share God's word with you. We have a lot of things to talk about this morning uh, as we come into this text. It's, uh, again, quite a lengthy text. But before we jump into it, I just wanted to take a moment to say uh, thank you. It has been about a month and a half since uh, the announcement came out that I was sticking around as a member of your full-time pastoral staff, and you have all been very uh, welcoming. I I appreciate uh, all the kind words and kindness that you've shown me, and I look forward to everything that we have in store for us for however many years that I'm here. I don't know how long that'll be, but uh, it'll be a good time. So thank you so much. Um, I have come to care for you all as my church family, and I look forward to to what God has in store for us there. Well, if you would grab your Bibles with me and turn to the, we're going to be in the middle of of Mark chapter 3. We'll be starting here in a few moments in verse 13. Um, today we get to talk about something that has been somewhat of a source of anxiety for a lot of folks throughout history, basically, uh, including myself. I came to this passage fairly early in life, and I carried a, a fear of what I read for much of my young and teenaged years. And it wasn't until I found my way into a, a Bible school where this passage was explained in a much clearer and complete way to understand what it means. Because yes, as many of you know from doing your community group notes or reading ahead, today we're talking about the unforgivable sin. And you can capitalize those, the unforgivable sin. So like I said, when I was quite young, I came across this passage for the first time. My mom uh, was and still is the janitor janitor of the church that I grew up in over in Lake Taps, uh, Lake Taps Community Church. And she would often bring uh, myself and or my brother with her to clean. Now, she would pay us. So it wasn't just child slavery. It wasn't go do my job for me. It was she would pay us $5 to go help her clean at the church. Uh, And so she would give us all kinds of jobs. I would often stock or restock like soap pumps. Uh, paper towels, toilet paper, whatever. She'd just kind of give us a job and, and she would leave us to that. Now, as children often do when they are unsupervised, they don't often do their job. Uh, and so I had this job, but I would often go find a corner to hide in and read a book or something. Often it was Teacher Jackie's classroom. I remember that. And she was like the, the pre-K through K teacher and she had a big pile of pillows in the back of her Sunday school classroom that I would go and hide in. And of course, course, uh, I would often read the Bible there because you go to church, you trip over a Bible about every 10 feet. And so uh, I had that and that's kind of what I had. And and so be it. That's how I was going to procrastinate. Anything but doing the job I was assigned. Um, so I came across this passage one such time when I was in that room in that pile of pillows and I came here to Mark 3 and it started off years of anxiety because I became concerned that I would accidentally commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, accidentally do this sin and be condemned for it, even though I didn't understand what it meant. Like it was something I could like trip over almost. And just, I knew enough at the time what the implication of an unforgivable sin would be. I'd be like, does that mean I don't go to heaven? Well, yeah. The truth of today's passage is that it it isn't a shrouded, confusing picture of anxiety and worry about accidentally doing this thing. But what Jesus is actually doing in saying these is assurance of a much clearer, much brighter picture. He's talking about what it means to be a part of the Lord's house, 
what it means to be part of the Lord's family even. And if we understand how Mark is saying this and what Jesus is saying and, and the way Mark has arranged these stories, we get a message of hope, a message of mercy, a message of the forgiveness of sins. But in, in that, there is still a grave warning. I don't want to completely ignore that. There is still a truth here of what happens when people with hard hearts stay that way. And I say that in that way because remember last week, Pastor Jay, if you were here, talked about these people interacting with Jesus, people who had hard hearts, who had critical hearts, people who had come to listen to Jesus, just waiting for him to cross some line, break some rule that they themselves made or drawn in the sand. Uh, Today we see what happens when hard hearts stay hard indeed, even for the rest of someone's life. A willing and repeated hardening, a continual rebellion, a continual rejection of the truth of who Jesus is. Essentially, the question is one that you can take today's sermon title and turn it into a question. What happens when a person rejects Jesus Christ? You know, just a little lighthearted question this morning. Nothing huge or earth-shattering at all. I'm kidding, of course. Uh, Let's get into this story and this passage with its intricacies. But first, let's pray. Uh, Let's ask God for help and wisdom in this text today because we need it. Uh, Won't you join me? Dear Lord, we thank you so much that we have this text, God, that we are given it to wrestle with, Lord, that we are um, given it to understand, but also just what it it shows us about who you are, Lord, uh, that above all else, you're welcoming, you are inclusory, that you bring people in, uh, God, that you brought us in. Uh, Lord, I just thank you again for that missional mindset that, that uh, Tyler alluded to uh, earlier, Lord. We just thank you that it's come to us as well. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I went back and forth a bit in preparation, just looking at this text, because as with it, as it has been with a lot of the other texts in Mark, it's a very long one. This one's over, uh, over 20 verses, which would be kind of take some time to read all in one section, all in one go. Uh, but on the other hand, there is a distinct point that Mark is making in stringing these stories together. And I didn't want to completely lose that this morning as we look at it. So I kind of settled in a midway point. Uh, We're going to read all of it in time. But first, I want to give you kind of the hundred foot flyby overview of what is happening in this story. So we can have a picture in our minds and then we can go back and kind of take it apart. So sound good? Um, So first, let's start with some context. Uh, What happened before the story, I kind of alluded to, uh, we talked about these challenges these past few weeks, uh, past three weeks, I suppose. We had a break in there for Stefan. But Pastor Stephen and Pastor Uh, Jay were taking us through these challenges that Jesus was receiving from the religious leaders of his day. That was the beginning of chapter 3, kind of wrapped up those. And then before that in chapter 2, Pastor Stephen brought up those. And we wrapped that up in the story of the healing of a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. That was breaking the laws of the Pharisees. And so when the Pharisees see this, they scamper off to scheme with the Herodians. Remember those uh, secular uh, political group uh, as well. 
And then as Jesus withdrew with his disciples out of the town, a huge crowd follows him uh, because of his healings and other miracles. And as Jesus casts out demons, he's instructing them, continue, keep quiet. Don't tell people who I am. Now that brings us to, uh, brings us through, sorry, brings us through the first part of Mark chapter 3 and to the beginning of our text today, uh, where we'll be starting in verse 13. So again, we'll come back to reading it, uh, but we'll continue on our 100-foot overview here. This section... Starts off with Jesus, now a little more alone, calling all those he desired to himself. And from that group, that undisclosed amount of group, uh, amount of people that came to him, he appoints 12, uh, these 12 main apostles, and charging them with a couple of specific tasks. And these people are uh, Simon Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew the tax collector, we called him Levi earlier in Mark chapter 2, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, but a different Alphaeus than Levi's dad, uh, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot the traitor. Spoiler alert. Uh, he changes the, or charges them to travel with him, to be with him, and to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And so as Jesus returns home again, these crowds appear again, right? Remember the, these crowds that are getting in the way a lot of the time. And this time, they're even stopping him from eating. And it's at this point, his family sees what's happening, the crowds, all the stuff that's been going on. They say, well, Jesus is crazy. Let's go get him. Uh, and so that is where Mark kind of interrupts the story. He kind of leaves that cliffhanger and then zooms in on a scene that happens with, one, with a couple of these scribes. Right, these scribes come down from Jerusalem and they accuse him. You cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. To which Jesus' response is to talk in parables. A house divided cannot stand. A kingdom can't fight against itself. And Satan cannot rise up against Satan and win. And he ends all this by saying all sins will be forgiven save one. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because of what they were saying. And they were saying that Jesus had an unclean spirit and he was doing these by that. And Mark wraps up this this chapter in the story um, with returning to Jesus' family, looking at what happens after this account. His mother and his brothers, they come to the crowd, this crowd that's surrounding him, and word reaches Jesus uh, that they've come to collect him. And he says, who are my mothers and brothers and sisters? It's you guys. It's whoever is doing the will of God. So there's your 100-foot overview of this passage. It's yet another moment in the book of Mark where he very intentionally does not engage in linear storytelling, where he's kind of splitting things apart and rearranging things as he is trying to make uh, a point. He's trying to display his message um, by going back and forth on several things. And this message, it contains a warning, yes, but also an invitation. This hardness of the heart, it's displayed by the scribes accusing him. You're doing this by Beelzebul. Um, it, it prompts him to say, well, who is actually a part of my house? For all those who join Jesus in doing the will of God, it's not going to be a problem, this unforgivable sin. But instead, all their sins will be forgiven. So let's loop back around to the beginning of the story, and let's walk through this text now much slower, much more carefully. We'll be in Mark chapter 3. This is starting in verse 13. 
Uh, and before we get into that, one last thing. I have a few questions that have been stated in your, uh, in your sermon notes there. And the first one that we're going to start with is, who does Jesus will to himself? And you'll see I put quotes around that. We'll get to that in a moment. But that's part of the question that's answered here in this first part of Mark chapter 3, our text for today. Uh, so let's jump in at verse 13. And he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. So again, Jesus, in his retreat up the mountain he, to get away from these crowds, he calls up a group of people. And we're not told how many people are here. It could be just the 12. It could be more than just the 12. We're not sure. It doesn't say. Um, but out of that group of people, whether it was just the 12 or more, he does call these 12 apostles for this first time. And we get one of the list of the 12 apostles here. Uh, the, these people we're going to see and hear a lot more, especially as, as they, can, they continue to join in, in Christ's ministry or after he dies, they continue uh, to lead the church and do that sort of thing. Uh, but for the most part, Mark doesn't give us a lot of details on these people, but the ones that he does are very interesting because he does intentionally drop a few details on some of these 12. And some of these we've heard from already. Uh, five of them we've actually already encountered in the book of Mark. But when we look at all of them together, this 12, we see a very interesting picture of a very eclectic group of people. They're all very strange and different. It's not really what you would expect to be following uh, this kind of first century rabbi figure. So like I said, five of these guys we've already encountered in the book of Mark, and I'm not going to say too much on them because we have, we have said as much, but I'll give you a brief refresher. Right? Simon Peter, Andrew, who's his brother, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and Matthew, we've all heard of before. Right? Matthew we called Levi back in Mark chapter 2. We've already talked, like I said, we've already talked about these guys, but just a reminder, four of these guys are blue-collar fishermen, right? Working guys, they, they just fish. That's what they do. Uh, they aren't like scribes or super well-learned. They would know enough just from growing up in Jewish culture, and they would know the scriptures, but they were just blue-collar working, working guys. And then Matthew, as a tax collector, would have been somebody who was reviled and hated, Nobody has love for the IRS, right? <laughs> it was a little bit different at the time. It was IRS, but they also saw them as traitors to their entire country and indeed their entire people. And likely, this group of this, this tax collector, right, when, they, when Levi follows Jesus, it says that he was a tax collector by the sea, which means he was probably collecting taxes from these first four guys, like these fishermen. And so not only are you joining this, this like group of people with a tax collector and all these fishermen, but some of them probably don't like each other. Some of them probably were like, hey, you stole my money last week. 
you you overcharged me like time and time again every time I came down to get my boat and go fish. So likely, again, it doesn't say particularly, but just gathering what we've seen from Mark so far, without even looking at any new information that they're given, we already have some tension in this group. We already have some people who probably had some negative experiences with each other. It's a strange group. But the strange just doesn't stop there as Mark then begins to insert different details. Right? James and John, two of these fishermen, they're given this nickname by Mark. He, he writes it and then he translates it, right? Uh, Boanerges or the Sons of Thunder. It sounds pretty cool. It doesn't actually say why they have this nickname, but a lot of people have theorized that it's because they're very loud, very brash, and very opinionated. They have a lot of ways of saying things. They have a lot of things to say, and they want to say them loudly. Or, in other words, they have a tendency to put their foots in their mouths and do it very loudly, which is something that I can relate to. (laughs) Whatever it was, you have these likely loud, likely brash, rough-and-tumble people. The strangeness continues, though, because the next descriptor is Simon the Zealot. Now, zealots, they were another particular group in first century Israel. The Gospels don't deal with them as much as it does with the Pharisees. Um, But the zealots were members of the Jewish people who were incredibly keen on throwing the Romans out uh, and taking control of their country once more. They were often a lot more militant, often a lot more rebellious. There was actually quite a few rebellions that were started by this kind of zealot group. And they certainly would not have liked to have been seen hanging out with a tax collector who, again, they saw as traitors. The very, very last person in this group is where the strangeness goes to its peak because it, it gives us a spoiler. Mark gives us a spoiler. Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray Jesus, he's also part of this group. He's part of the apostles. He's part of the people that Jesus said, come to me. That's how Mark ends this group. This future misfit that Mark is telling you, this guy is anything but normal. So you have this huge mix of people, blue-collar, rowdy, loud Israelites, alongside the likes of tax collectors, rebels, someone who would betray them. And these are the part of the group that Jesus desired to bring to him. The ones that he said, bring them to me. They will be the leaders that I will rely on after I'm gone. I will give them authority to cast out demons. That word desired, I I tweaked a bit for the question in the subtitle. I say, who does Jesus will to himself? The word that is used there for desire is thelo, which is essentially the verb form of the word that Jesus uses at the end of chapter 3, where he says, and whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The will of God, noun form, thelema. Mark is sandwiching these stories. Jesus wills people to himself to do the will of God. Whoever does God's will. They are my family. And then you look at this mix of people who become Jesus' apostles, and it begins to paint a much more interesting picture. One that has many different kinds of people in it. It's not all one kind of people. A follower of Jesus doesn't look just one way. It looks like a lot of 
a lot of different people from a lot of different places in life. The mix of people who became Jesus' apostles, they weren't just some cobbled together group of whoever Jesus could find. But I think they were intentionally brought from all kinds of people. Because then even as we fast forward and we look in the future, Jesus will even call a Pharisee to follow him. The apostle Paul on the road sees Jesus, follows Jesus. There are all sorts of people following God's will, which comes out of Jesus' desire for them to be with him. No accidents about him. No random folks off the street, but just a lot of folks who come at Christ's invitation and his desire. Zealots, traitors, and all. So who does Jesus will to himself? It's all kinds of people. The 12, they were unique, yeah. Uh, they, were, they were given in the authority to cast out demons and they traveled directly with Jesus. I can't make those kinds of claims myself. But everyone is invited to come to Jesus. These people are given a new family identity, new things to define who they are, no longer just a zealot, no longer just a Pharisee, but a follower of Jesus, a fisher of men. This undoubtedly would have caused some friction, especially among Israelites who saw themselves as chosen. We are God's people. We're it. But what Jesus begins to say is, you missed the point. All those who follow God, follow God's will. They are my people. Mark begins to transition this story, right? We're, we've just gotten past the, this list of 12 disciples. He goes into the next story immediately to use his own favorite word. Verses 20 through 21 begin to shift the narrative. Uh, Jesus, he returns home. He's once again beset by crowds. These crowds so much that he can't even eat. I imagine it's like a, uh, it's like a, a lunch meeting where every time you go to take a bite, someone asks you a question and suddenly you got to stop and put it down and talk again. It's kind of, it must have been something like that. You can't even eat. Just as soon as somebody, as soon as he sits down, somebody's coming up like, I can heal me, uh, cast out a spirit, something like that. Once again, crowds are getting in the way. Just a lot of rubberneckers who are wanting to see what's happening, but are really just kind of gumming things up. When the rest of Jesus' family hears this, they seem to get a little fed up. They call him crazy, and they say, let's go get him. He can't take care of himself. So this little transition scene does a lot to set up what happens next, but Mark kind of leaves it as a cliffhanger. He says, I'm going to move on. Because instead of flowing right into what happens with his family as they go down, Mark inserts a scene with one of these scribes, or with some of these scribes. It says multiple. The middle, it kind of almost returns to those clashes that Jesus has been having with religious authorities. Well, there's another one, except it's not really a clash. The last we heard of these folks in this narrative, uh, Pharisees had gone off to plot with the Herodians about what to do with this Jesus guy, right? Saying, we got to get rid of him. In the meantime of that, or perhaps in conjunction with that, again, Mark doesn't really say, we just know what he's saying about scribes and Pharisees. These scribes, they come down and they accuse Jesus of something pretty outlandish and horrible. Acting in the power of Satan. Seems a little desperate to me on the part of the scribes here. Let's read this one a little bit more closely. Uh, Join me in Mark chapter 3. This is starting in verse 22 now. 
And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, All sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. There's a lot going on here. There's an accusation, there's parables, and there's this very serious, this very grave warning. This warning that, as I've said earlier, has caused a lot of anxiety for a lot of people. Probably through the generations, there's been more anxiety around this warning than we can possibly know. But we need to understand this warning well, because, as Jesus puts it here, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that's not something you can do accidentally. That's not something you can just walk into without knowing it. What this passage shows us instead is that it is a continual hardening of the heart that results in this. I mentioned this earlier. The hardening of the heart that finds its completion in staying hard until death. We see this in the scribe who approaches Jesus. Remember how uh, the scribes and Pharisees have been painted thus far in this, this plot, what, the, what has led up to this, an effort of the scribes and the Pharisees to challenge Jesus, then to reject Jesus, and now to put up a scheme to try and stop him. Because it would appear the next step in their plot is to knowingly and willingly discredit Jesus by labeling his power as demonic. Coming from Beelzebul, the prince of demons, another name for Satan, the great adversary, the great accuser. A lot of people have noticed that this this title, Beelzebul, has striking similarities to an encounter with a god of the Philistines in 2 Kings chapter 1 by the name Baal-zebub. Baal-zebub's name translates to Lord of the Flies, equating him with filth and disease. I bring that up to say that this scribe knowingly was invoking some of these very same, very heinous forces, calling Jesus' power unclean, demonic of Satan. If they can convince people, I'm sure they were thinking this, if they can convince people that what he's doing is demonic in nature, then surely he'd disappear. He'd stop causing problems for us. Well, they kind of forgot who they were talking to. Because Jesus' reply invokes almost basic wisdom. If this indeed is a struggle or a war between powers of evil and powers of righteousness, powers of filthiness versus powers of cleanliness, then why would Satan cast out Satan? If I were to put this in Star Wars terms, 
how could the Rebel Alliance defeat the Empire if they were fighting amongst themselves? They couldn't. Can you imagine how anticlimactic and how that story would have ended if Luke in his famous trench run gets shot out of the sky by Han Solo? It doesn't work. That's the same kind of absurdity that Jesus shows his audience that this claim is. But indeed, the power by which he's doing these things is greater than that of Satan's. And that's what he says in verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Jesus is doing the plundering here. When he's casting out demons, what he is is he's grabbing someone back. He's saying, they're mine. And if Jesus is doing the plundering, then he tied up the strong man. Who's stronger than a strong man? A stronger man. (laughs) The only person who is stronger than Satan, and any good Jewish folk would have known this, this claim is saying that his power is from God himself. Who's stronger than Satan? Well, God certainly is. So now we begin to see how this image of this final warning is coming into view. Because it's after saying these things, his power is greater, his power is not of Satan, that a house divided cannot stand. It's in light of these things that Jesus gives this this incredibly grave warning. But before that warning, before we get to that, he also gives us a statement in which there is so much hope. Truly I say to you, Jesus said, all sins will be forgiven the children of man in whatever blasphemies they utter. Just take a moment there on that one. Don't move on yet. All the sins will be forgiven the children of man. The last time I was here preaching at sunset was in our summer series, and I shared with you the good news of the atonement, of Christ's atoning sacrifice, his death on the cross to wipe out sin from mankind for all who simply take that free gift of eternal life. It's right here as well. It's right here in Mark chapter 3. This is the message of Jesus Christ. And look at the kind of people who have taken this gift since. I mentioned Paul earlier, right? Pharisee joined the apostles. A Pharisee of Pharisees, he described himself so zealous for the Jewish faith that he killed and imprisoned Christians. But he took the gift of eternal life. There was once a man who came to our campus at Corbin. That's where I got my degrees. And he was with a, he was with a street evangelism ministry. And just people who go up to random people on the street and say, have you ever heard of Jesus? Really brave thing to do to begin with. But this man, he was also an ex-convict. I remember him and his story because as he was standing on our stage in the Psalm Center, the the convention center at Corbin, he said these words. I was in jail at 17 because I found out early on that I just liked stabbing people. But in prison, Jesus found this guy, this guy who just liked stabbing people. And they got a hold of his, he got a hold of his heart. And now he's out on the street again. He's free, rehabilitated, and telling people 
about Jesus. All sins will be forgiven the children of man. All of them. Except one. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For this he said they were saying he has an unclean, evil spirit. I've said this multiple times now. This is not something you can do by accident. This is not something you can just step in. I found this best put in the words of R. Alan Cole in his commentary on Mark. There is forgiveness with God for every sin and blasphemy except one. This is the sin of the willfully blind who persistently refuse the illumination of the Spirit, oppose the Spirit's work, and justify themselves in doing so by deliberately misrepresenting him. For such there can be no forgiveness, for they have refused the only way of forgiveness that God has provided. Indeed, they have slammed the door. There is but one way to forgiveness. There is an extension of grace and mercy that has come from the cross, that has come from Jesus. The role of the Holy Spirit is to bring us to that, to bring us to and lead us to that truth. And if it is refused, the leading of the Holy Spirit, if that is refused, blasphemy. That is what Jesus labels it as unforgivable. A willing unforgiveness. I don't want it. C.S. Lewis was famous for his quotes and his idea on hell and the problem of pain, that the doors are locked from the inside. I once again find myself unable to word it better than those uh, who came before me. So here's that quote in a more, if it's more completed form from the problem of pain, you have part of it printed in your notes there. But starting earlier, C.S. Lewis says, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end. That the doors of hell are locked on the inside. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. Just as the blessed forever submitting to obedience become through all eternity more and more free. And Lewis continues, in the long run, the answer to all, the, all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs, to give them a fresh start, smoothing over every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. But he has done so at Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone. Alas, I am afraid that is what he does. The sin of the willfully blind, the sin of the rebels to the end, they desire Christ to leave them alone. That's what these Pharisees did. That's what these scribes were saying. We don't want Jesus. Our hearts are hardened. I don't want to hear his message. I want him to go away. I want him to leave. So what happens when a person rejects Jesus? He leaves them alone. Just as they wanted him to. And God's house won't be divided either. Such is the message that Mark drives home in returning to the story of Jesus' family coming to collect him. Let's finish out our passage today as we take a moment to look back at it all. 
in verse 31. And his mother's, Jesus' mother and brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Finally, we get this conclusion to the story that began back in verse 20. Jesus' family, they don't get the answer that they were expecting. But instead, this statement, whoever does the will of God, they're my family. They're part of my house. As we look back at the calling of the disciples, the challenge of the scribe, the accusation of the scribe, I should say, the warning from Jesus, we're given a view of a very broad-reaching gospel. All the sins will be forgiven the children of man. All people invited into Christ's family. A highly inclusory gospel, one that it says, it is for all who do the will of God, they can come. The only person who's excluded are those who don't want it. Those who are in open rebellion. So as we come to the, the end of all this today, we might be le- left with this question, right? I know being a part of Christ's family means salvation. I know that willfully refusing him means exactly what it says here. A sin unforgiven and all that comes with that. All the condemnation that comes with that. So then, if I am to be in God's family and do the will of God, how am I to know what that is? That is a question that we don't have enough time to talk about a lot this Sunday, as we could spend many more Sundays talking about what is God's will, how do we find it. But I want to give you and leave you a few things to chew on in the meantime. As we think about what it takes to accept Christ and be counted as part of his united house, we think about this question sometimes too narrowly. There's two kinds of wills. There's what's often called God's specific will, his will for my life, my specific life. And then there's his general will. And his general will is revealed in this. What does God want for humanity, for all of us? What is his will for how I am to act, how we are to be, who we are to trust? It's all in scripture. You find God's will in scripture. And often when we come to a specific will, this was often the case in college, and maybe it still is for, for some people here today. We often think about these in terms of, of kind of two questions. What am I going to do when I grow up? What job am I going to have? And who am I going to marry? Those were two things that a lot of people in college, when they said, I, don't want, I want to know what God's will is for my life, those are the two things that they were talking about. But those are too narrow. They're important. It's important to know what God's specific will for your life is, but it's more important to know what God has in store for you. And that's something you can only find in the word of God. His will will come out of the Holy Spirit's life, or work in your life, as you're transformed by your mind, as your soul is transformed, as your heart is transformed. And that can only be done by finding out what God says his will is in here. And out of that, everything else will flow. So as we think about responding to God's word 
in worship and obedience this morning. Uh, first things first, we want to be diligent in examining God's word for his will. We shouldn't be trying to fill in the blanks. If you feel like something in you is saying, this is the will of God to do this, and it breaks scripture, then it's not the will of God. That's a different voice. Nothing that is God's will for your life will contradict what is written in the pages of scripture. And we should be thankful for that. You know, as we talk about the season of thank, uh, thanksgiving, the season of, of thankfulness, we should be grateful that, yes, at times it's hard to understand. And sometimes we need a little help. Sometimes we need a little thought. But everything, everything that God wants us to do, everything that God knows that we need for a life to know him can be found in the Bible. We should be so grateful for that. If we're asking, where's the manual to life, God? I don't know what to do. Here it is. We want to take this warning, though, even as we think about that. We think back to this warning, an unforgiven sin, uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, all these things. We want to take that with humility. I, like I said, I also suffered under the anxiety that it can bring to not know what this means. But unpacking it and looking at it, I, I hope that it doesn't bring anxiety. But instead, when you read the passages and what's around it, you can find hope. What it means to be a part of Jesus's family, a part of Christ's house, of God's house. It's a big, big house. With lots and lots of room. We have an opportunity now to participate as God's house and Christ's family in one of the ways that he commanded us to by taking of communion uh, in some way that this is kind of a family meal if you want to think about it like that. I know you're thinking it's not a meal. It looks like a little cracker and a little cup of juice. I need a little bit more than that to call it a meal. I don't blame you. In the first century, they often did celebrate this with a full meal, but they would take a moment in the middle even then to remember and reflect on what Christ has done for us by his death on the cross by what was done at Calvary. To remember that he took our sins and he wiped them out. As this passage here in Mark says, that all sins will be forgiven the children of man. All sins have been forgiven the children of man. So with that, won't you come up and take the elements and once we have them, we'll, we'll come back and take them all together. sacrifice of Jesus is to remember what he has promised us. It is to remember that he wills people. He invites people. He desires people to come to receive the gift of grace, to have their sins forgiven, be brought into the Lord's family. And so we take this small token of a family meal together. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Won't you stand if you're able and join me in prayer? Lord, we just, uh, we look back at your work on the cross, Lord, and we just thank you so, so much, Lord. Um, It serves as an invitation to join your family, Lord, but it also represents something so staggeringly incomprehensible. The elimination of sin and its consequences. God, I just pray that we would take hold of that, Lord, that we, um, we look at this passage, Lord, we see the hope the forgiveness of sins of all men, the invitation to something new. God, I just pray that we would hold on to those. That we wouldn't let fear and anxiety rule our hearts and things like that, Lord. Yes, fear, healthy fear, understanding your power, that it's great, that it's vast, but also understanding that your faithfulness is great as well. Great is your faithfulness. Lord, let us hold to that as we go out from here today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.